Let us again go to our, our great God for help. Go to him with praise and prayer. Oh Lord, we, we continue to worship you. As now we hear your word read and preached, we come and ask that you might give us eyes and ears and hearts to, to see and hear and understand. Father, we ask that the Spirit might, might work in, in each of our lives, that all those who hear, that as they do, your perfect will would be done. Calling of the lost, and particularly, Lord, we pray for the building up of your people. We ask that, that your means of grace would be made effectual for your glory, for our benefit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, we're continuing to move through and almost to the end of the gospel according to Luke. And as you're turning in your Bibles, I hear the pages shuffling. I'll remind you that uh, Luke's written to confirm the certainty of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. We now come at this portion, Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32 to the crucifixion of our Lord. We see here, as, as you'll hear, following along as I read, the focus in, in Luke is, is very similar to the rest of the gospel accounts, one that does not spend much time dealing on the difficulties and the tortures and the anguish of body that happened, but on the significance on this atoning sacrifice. So follow along. This is God's word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Have you ever thought about how big the number trillion is? Like we hear it all the time. I mean, it gets thrown around, you know, trillion dollars this or trillion that. But have you ever thought about how massively large that number is? Like one of my one of my favorite ways to picture it is uh, the counting of of seconds. Perhaps maybe you've heard of this. If not, hopefully this will help put it in your mind the the massiveness, the hugeness of one trillion. If you were to to line out a million seconds, it'd just be eleven days. What? About a third of a month. Not too long. If you were to up that to a billion, a billion seconds, you're going to get about 31 years. That's a, that's a little longer. To some of you, that's really old. To others, that was a long time ago. But 31 years, that's a pretty decent time, three decades. So we made a jump from 11 days, from a million seconds. We get to a billion seconds, and, and, and we jump up to 31 years, and then we come to a trillion. What, what, what length of time would a trillion seconds be? It's over 31,000 years. That's how long a trillion seconds is. It's like mind-boggling numbers. It's, it's on a scale that we're not, perhaps shouldn't, be dealing with on a regular basis or thinking about. So, it's huge. It's massive. That's... That's your account. That's the, the debt of your sin before God. It's an unpayable amount, a, a number that is so large. It's, it's like getting the, the statement in the mail that says you owe $1 trillion. You're like, well, I, I mean, I do pretty good. I make enough to feed my family, but I can't pay back a trillion dollars. Particularly after we just lined out how huge and massive a number that is. It's unpayable. The wonderful thing about the gospel, the wonderful thing about what we see Christ doing on the cross is he's, he's paying that debt. Taking care of the account for his people. That huge, unfathomable number, that unpayable number he pays, deals with. It's gone. The cross, Christ on it, his, his death, his crucifixion, and then we'll see his, his death next time in his Resurrection, and this is the center point of redemptive history. Everything is focused on this. The most significant thing. So as you look at these, these few verses this evening, I want you to see that Jesus Christ's crucifixion is the atoning sacrifice that accomplished salvation for sinners. Just as last week we we're reminded to look to Christ in repentance and faith. This week as we see the crucifixion, may we be reminded what it is. The great significance behind it. So we're going to look at three things together. Crucified amongst criminals, crucified by mocking scoffers, and crucified to save sinners. Crucified amongst criminals. Jesus Christ. His death, Jesus Christ's crucifixion, where we find him now in, in the gospel according to John, is, 
It's been foretold. This is a, a messianic prophecy that, that told us that this was going to be happening and that he would be amongst criminals. In a good 700 years before this actual happening, before the earthly ministry of Christ, before he came in the incarnation, God the Son came and took on flesh. The Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, said that this thing was going to happen and that his, his atoning death would be amongst transgressors, amongst criminals that are around him. It was, it was foretold. I encourage you to, this evening or, or this week, to go back and, and read either for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time, Isaiah 53. We won't read the entire chapter, just, just verse 12. And see just a few of the things that are heading on what we see happening in our passage this evening. Isaiah 53, verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Another reminder, as we've seen all the way through, hopefully to some extent, not that it has gotten old, but that it has worked a rut in your brain. That we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is in control. He is moving. His mission has been to redeem his church, his bride. He's now there. And it isn't something that just happened and caught him off guard, as we've said over and over again. But this is what he is about. What the word has been preparing his people for. And what we able... We are able, as God's people, to now read and see and be encouraged. But yes, through and through, God's word is true. It testifies to all that the Lord is doing. Jesus Christ's humiliation includes being executed with these common criminals there at Golgotha, there at the skull. You can go around the United States, you can go around... The world, different places, particularly Europe, where massive wars and battles have been fought. And and you can go to these parks, these these battlefields, and find monuments. In fact, if you go to downtown Knoxville, there at the big golden sphere, you go down to the the park, and there's a, there's a, a section set aside. And it has its monuments of all the, the soldiers who have died in the different wars. They're from Knoxville. And they're held up as heroes, heroic. Their death was something to remember, something to celebrate. You have monuments like that around the world. As cultures and societies look, look to the, those who die in, in battle and make great sacrifice. And then we see the humiliation of our Savior who willingly chose the death of of a criminal, that he might atone for the sins of his people, dying in such a way that it was unthinkable for anyone other than the lowest of the low in that day. The form of Roman torture, the cross, the cursed tree in which he hung. And we look at that and it's good, and it's right that the Spirit give us a gut check on our pride, remind us who bought us price that was paid, 
who we are in Christ. That we might be humble like our Savior. That we might always remember the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. We see he's crucified amongst criminals. And, and then as we continue in our passage, as we read it, we see that he's, he's crucified by, by mocking scoffers. Jesus Christ is literally mocked as the Savior. They toy with him. They, they, they take the taunting to a level that we, we've never experienced. We're unable to perhaps even understand. These religious leaders, these Roman soldiers, even the criminals around him, particularly the one that rejects him, They take the one thing that he was meant to do and they rub it in his face. You're supposed to be the Savior. You've done all these great things. You've helped others. You've you've performed these great works, miracles even, and yet here you are dying on the Roman cross. Show us. Show us who you are. The Christ, the Messiah, show us now. Do it. Do it. Of course, they are mocking him in unbelief and rebellion, and yet it's, it's the underlying tone of the temptation and the, and the whispers of Satan. In one way, there's almost the great mocking of an offering once again of another way. Come on, come down off that cross. Show everyone who you are. You're the Savior. Then show us, but show us the way we want to see. He's ridiculed by those who have been scoffing and fighting against him since the beginning to his face. And yes, granted, we don't know what it's like to be the God-man, holding all things together and being taunted and mocked by the very ones in whom we are giving breath to at that moment. But some of us, many of us, know what it's like to be mocked, made fun of. Children, you may have experienced that, adults. You know, the Lord saved me later in life, but I remember the first time someone openly ridiculed me for being a Christian. It took me a minute to figure out what they were saying. I didn't grow up in, in evangelical youth groups and this and that, so the things that this person was, was stabbing at me in words took me. A minute, they even had to explain to me what they were doing. They're like, no, I'm making fun of you, you idiot. Oh, that's what's happening? I didn't understand the jargon. What he was saying, what he was holding up. But once I figured out what was happening, and I walked away after that, it stung. No one likes to be ridiculed. But one can imagine the humiliation Christ is there on the cross. He's there to to bear the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And again, the religious leaders, those very very ones that were supposed to be holding on to the truth, the oracles of God, they were supposed to be preparing God's people for the coming of the Messiah. They are the ones leading the taunts and the mocking. One might say, well, the Roman soldiers, you know, I mean, they probably don't know any better. But these religious leaders, that they might be the ones. And that Christ would sit subjected to that. 
lying on the cross listening to that. So he's, he's mocked as, as Savior, but Jesus Christ is also mocked as King. So first they mock him, oh, you're, you're the Savior? Save yourself. And then they mock him as King. Oh, you think you're King. Again, if you were King and had this authority, why would you be hanging from the cross? I don't know if you've noticed there are those who have authority positions, particularly in the civil realm, that when someone might make fun of them or perhaps mock them, they, okay, they probably don't like it, don't enjoy it, but they understand their position. They understand what it is for fools to speak to them. And then there's, there's a swing where you see those who, who have authority in, in civil realm, and, and normally it's in some form of a tyrannical holding of it, they cannot allow themselves to be mocked. It is the end of all things. They hate it. And yet we see here the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the one whom all civil authorities will bow their knee to. And he's being mocked for that. Again, it's because these These folks do not believe it at that moment. They know it now. And we pray that many of them, hopefully by God's grace, know it in a saving way. But they know who Christ is. But our Savior, the King of Kings, the God-man on the cross, mocked for who he is. In essence, his creatures mocking him. It's, It's not as bad, but it's like a it's like a little child mocking their parent. Like a little four or five-year-old. Just viciously mocking mom or dad. But baby, multiply that by a trillion. And you get what's happening here. To reject Christ as king is, is that's terrible rebellion. To mock him in such a way that, yes, there's unbelief, but to... To see, once again, that temptation right at the end. That Satan may be lying before him. There's another way. You can still come down off that cross. You don't have to fully hold that wrath of God against you. Aren't you the Savior? Aren't you the King? We see this crucified amongst criminals, our Savior. We see he's crucified by mocking scoffers. And then what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at, he's crucified to save sinners. The mission, the purpose, what he's been driving towards this whole time. We see on display here Jesus Christ's compassion and love for sinners. It's on display as he is on the cross. As we read through this passage even in the mocking, even in the setting, at the skull, amongst the criminals, the humiliation of Christ in the midst of this, we see clearly shining bright Christ's compassion and love for sinners. Now, you may be much more sanctified than I am, but I find it hard to love people who hate me. 
Now, I know I, I know I need to, and I pray that God helps me do it better. But I find that hard to know that there's someone who really, really hates to love them truly. Not just say, I love you, and then stay really, really far away. But to actually, biblically, with God's grace, to love as we're called to do. That's hard. And then I think about, man, there were people I knew were trying to kill me. Man, it'd be hard to love them. I think, I, I think first thing I want to do is get maybe the police involved and get them really far away. And then I think, man, maybe perhaps I want to defend myself. Loving them is not the first thing that comes to mind. And yet that's what we see here. Christ is on the, the cross. The first thing that is recorded when he's on the cross, the first thing recorded by the inspiration of the Spirit here in the Gospel according to Luke, what we have here, Jesus' first utterance is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's in this setting of humiliation. He's been mocked. He's been attacked. And yet he is asking his Father to forgive them. I agree with several of commentators I read that, that, that this is, you know, he's talking to his father. It's a prayer. He's asking genuinely, forgive them. This morning at the plant, we're continuing to move through Acts. And so we've come to the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And now we come to the, to the fruit that the Spirit brings from that sermon. And, and Peter concludes the sermon by bringing conviction to all those who are hearing. And he says to them, you're Messiah. You, the city, the leadership, all those involved, you're all part of the murder of the Christ. He died, raised from the dead. He's ascended You need to look to him in faith and trust in him for salvation, but you're all guilty of that. And the Spirit works. Don't know how large the crowd was, but we do know when you read Acts, 3,000 people repented and believed that very day. That's quite a sermon. Because the Spirit was working. Perhaps that's the ripples of this prayer. Of that 3,000 who may have been there that were there at this moment in Luke, the crucifixion of Christ, or at least were on the outskirts involved. But we don't even have to go that far. We see that right here there's one of the criminals. See an answer to prayer there, and then we're going to see next time we're together. There's another answer to prayer with one of the Roman soldiers immediately, right there. When you're when you're in a dry patch, when your faith is is waning, it's kind of like the roller coaster's coming down. You're in the bottom. You're in the valley. You're doubting, can God love me? 
Is his grace and forgiveness true? Does he really know who I am in my heart? What I think? How sometimes I'm actually bitter and angry about his providence and what he's done? In those moments, I encourage you to look to Christ, to remember Christ here, that he might be your hope. might cling to him as your rock and your refuge. And then also, not just for yourself, but, but that you would in your prayers and in your conversations with others and with one another, that you would remember as we look at this passage, the crucifixion of Christ, what is happening here. You would remember There is no sinner beyond the reach of God's sovereign grasp. God saves murderers. God saves fornicators. God saves folks that cheat on their taxes. God saves folks that steal things. God saves folks that... that take advantage of situations and and turn their back on God's order, play house and pretend to be husband and wife. He forgives sinners like that. He pours his grace out on them and, and calls them to repentance, and they do. God saves those who who live homosexual lifestyles. God saves those who are prideful. God saves the self-righteous. God saves great sinners. God saved me. God saved you. God's grace is great. Christ's compassionate love for sinners is displayed on the cross. But not only that, we see Jesus Christ's sovereign power to save sinners is on display at the cross so that we can say, yes, God can save every person that he has appointed unto salvation. There is no one who can out God's grace. If the Lord has appointed them unto salvation. Christ did not go to this cross and hang on it on a whim or a hope. But he did it for the salvation of his people. We see God, Christ's sovereign power here. I was trying to think about it the other day, this week, if it was, I think it might have been my first year of seminary, I got sick, and something was going on, I just remember that my wife was, had, was traveling, I got sick, and it felt like it was several days, I don't know, went to the doctor, got medicine, I just remember I closed the blinds in the itty bitty small rental house we had, and I laid on the couch in the den with all the lights off. And I was so weak, I couldn't even watch TV, and I just slept. And I had an alarm clock on my phone that would go off so that I knew when to take my medicine. And I was so exhausted, so weak, that I was holding on to the wall to move to the kitchen or to go to the, to the restroom. I was just worn out. And we go through here, and I know we're not focusing, and I, I don't think rightly that 
that Luke is trying to focus us in, or the Holy Spirit is trying to focus us in on the, the physical torment that Christ is going through. But it, at this moment, under the wrath of God, in the midst of all this, it would seem to me this would be the physically, perhaps even spiritually weakest moment of the God-man's earthly ministry, his life. And yet in the midst of that, it's clear that he's strong. And he still has his eye fixed on those whom he's come to save. At the moment when the God-man should have been overwhelmed, he's ministering. We see here at the end of this passage, he's ministering to the repentant thief. That criminal next to him on the cross. He's not tunnel visioning. Be quiet. Don't you know this is the biggest moment in history right now? I'm saving the church. But instead, in the midst of all of that, he ministers to this man. So you've got the one criminal who's mocking Christ. But then, the other one, he rebukes his crossmate. He rebukes him. How dare you say these things? Do you have no fear of God? You know that you were here justly. We, we're supposed to be here. We're paying the penalty for our crimes. This man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. At the very end of this man's life, hanging on the cross, there is nothing he could do to earn salvation. And yet what we see is the Spirit working in him, showing these things. As he rebukes his crossmate, he confesses his sins, he repents, and he cries out in faith to Christ. Doesn't even get the great blessing of baptism. Turns to Christ, and Christ assures him, yes, today you will be with me in paradise. In the midst of that moment, all that's happening in Christ still out of compassion and love for this man next to him. It's ministering to him. That he might in that very day begin all eternity with him. And we're looking at the sovereignty of, of God and, and saving and Christ on the cross here when Ryle writes this, the same Savior who now holds out his hands to the disobedient and gainsaying will come one day in flaming fire taking vengeance on those that know not God and obey not the gospel, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Let these things sink down into our hearts. Christ is indeed most gracious But the day of grace must come to an end at last. An unbelieving world will find at length, as Jerusalem did, that there is judgment with God as well as mercy. No wrath will fall so heavily as that which has been long accumulating and heaping up. As some folks say, make make hay while the sun shines. Now is the time to repent to keep short accounts with God, to go to him and cry out, whether it's the first time or whether it's just the need for today. 
to ask him to forgive you for your sins. And now is the day to, to bring before your friends and family and your neighbors the great peril they are in and to point to them, our blessed Savior, to put him before them. Now is the day. Even as we look at this passage and we see Christ crucified amongst criminals and mocking scoffers and crucified to save sinners, may we be reminded that Jesus Christ's crucifixion is the atoning sacrifice that accomplished salvation for sinners. Amen, amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for, for all that Christ has done for us. There's nothing left other than to worship you. So receive our worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.